When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week's show features an artist who passed away almost 30 years ago. I'm so happy to welcome Scott Barber onto the show to discuss the life of Andrew Wood. Scott released a biography of Andy a few years ago, and I've been wanting to speak with him for years, and now this show is my excuse to do just that. We talk about Andy's days with Malfunction all the way through Mother Love Bone. Scott's getting close to releasing even more work from Andy, including another track that includes Chris Cornell. Go to manofgoldenwords.com to get updates. Follow us at Performance ANX on Twitter and Instagram. Merchandise is at performanceanx.threadless.com. Please subscribe, rate, review, spread the word, and please, please enjoy a show that means a lot to me. Scott Barber and I talking about Andrew Wood. Hi, I'm Scott Barber, uh, writer, director, producer of uh, Malfunction, the Andrew Wood story. I'd like to invite you to come check it out on Facebook uh, by the same name, Malfunction, Andrew Wood story. I got a book on Andy coming out called Man of Golden Words early next year, and there's a web page for that, uh, manofgoldenwords.com. And I want to thank you for listening to me here on Performance Anxiety. Yeah, that's fine. I'm just recording the audio, so it does. It, it's no big deal. Okay, cool, great. Because I got my glass of wine ready. Oh yeah, I got my daughter just came in with a plate of food. Perfect. Man. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> all right. So, um, all right. I think I'm all squared away too here. Now, thank you so much for doing this. I really do appreciate it, man. Yeah, man. I wanted to definitely talk to you because. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Andy Wood and Mother Love Bone, Malfunction, and anything that Andy was involved in. And you've done some incredible work with him and his family. And there's a lot of people who may not realize who Andrew Wood was and the effect that he had on music in general at this point. With Because so many with his passing, so many things happened that wouldn't have happened if, you know, if he hadn't overdosed. And without you don't have to go into a whole lot of detail, but could you maybe do a little synopsis of what happened to him, who he was, and what happened to him, and then then you know I can get into more of questions about uh, the questions that I wanted to ask you. Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, thanks for having me, man. It's uh, it's good to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. Um, yeah, uh, I think you know in regards to Seattle music. Andrew uh, signified Seattle in its infancy, in its birth, right? They were, when he was playing in Malfunction um, and, you know, early Soundgarden um, and Skin Yard and Melvin, some other bands around, um, they were just playing music for music's sake, you know? They were kind of friends playing music in their garage and 
just having a blast with it. And I think Andy kind of signified that for them. Uh, and then when with his unfortunate passing, um, he kind of handed the torch over to Kurt Cobain, who most people are familiar with, who took on the, the, the personification of Seattle and its maturity. Or, you know, things were, it wasn't as innocent as it was anymore. And they right. had to play the same songs over and over and answer to labels and tour. And, um, it just was a business. And, and Kurt was kind of the symbol of that. And then I think Lane kind of took the torch from there when, you know, after Kurt's unfortunate passing, that uh, Seattle kind of went in an old age and, uh, and labels dried up and left the town and, and Lane, you know, his unfortunate passing, which was slow and horrible, right. um, signified that kind of era, you know. And, you know, finally with Chris recently, which was which was just, you know, tragic. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, fine. it's over now, you know, like the godfather of it all is gone. And yeah. So I think that Andy was the very beginnings of, of – um, musicians just kind of coming into their own and figuring out who they were. And unfortunately, you know, he, he knew who he was, but what he was, um, was beyond earthly. You know, he wasn't meant to kind of be here in his own mind. Um, and because of it, he kind of, in a weird way, became like a martyr, you know, to your point that hmm. had he not passed, you know, a lot of the things that transpired wouldn't have come to be. It's almost like he knew that that was his role when he was alive, which is probably total bullshit, but <laughs> it seems like it. You know? <laughs> yeah, looking at it in hindsight, you can, I can see exactly what you're saying. You know, it's, yeah. it, you know, if he hadn't have passed, then Pearl Jam wouldn't have come to existence. And then, everything that branched off of Pearl Jam, all the uh, copycat bands and, and for better, for worse, you know, and, but I, I want to know how, when did you first hear of Andrew and, and, and his music? What was your first experience with him? Yeah, I was, so I was born and raised in San Francisco and, um, in the eighties. And, um, you know, for me, and I played a little bit of music, but not nearly as, you know, as good as people I know right. <laughs> <laughs> or even knew then, you know, um, <laughs> And, uh, for me, hard, you know, hard rock and metal, um, was just going away. You know, I, I was brought up on ACDC and early Van Halen and, uh, Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, you know, and, oh, yeah. and suddenly there was like just hair bands, you know, and leather and spandex and, you know, bands like Bang Tango and oh, Bullet Boys yeah. and Vane. You know, oh my gosh. Yes. It's horrible. <laughs> For me, at least, it was horrible. And music <laughs> was like secondary to like this weird look, and yeah, I, I was just kind of dissatisfied with it all. And um, one night, I uh, I had met some guys in a band called Faith No More, who were also from San Francisco, and Metallica was from Hayward, East Bay, and just new stuff was kind of surfacing. So I went to see Faith. Um, I think it was at the I Beam. In San Francisco, and a band called Soundgarden opened for them, wow. who I'd never heard of, and just blew my mind. Man, it was like Sabbath meets Zeppelin, you know, yeah. but and real and live and visceral. And so I was just floored. So I ended up meeting the band and uh, kind of following them from there. And they introduced me to um, 
introduced me to some of the new Seattle stuff, just loosely. You know, they were like, oh, check out this band, check out that band. Right. And one day, maybe maybe four years later, it must have been like, I mean, it's all a blur now, right? Right, yeah. Uh, 91. It must have been 1991. I was diving for vinyl on Market Street in San Francisco, and I found, um, I came across this album um it was another pyrrhic victory i think it was and it was some of those seattle bands that i had kind of heard about and and i really dug it because it, re- it was punk sensibilities with a little bit of hard rock mixture and just it it just you know rang in my ears in a good way yeah and then um i was at a party again with faith one night and someone put a sticker on my leather jacket which was like sacrilege oh right? yeah you don't touch somebody's leather jacket man it's no like, way it's like man fonzie you know yeah. <laughs> it was my fonzie moment <laughs> and uh and it said temple of the dog and i didn't know what it meant and um and the guy was like just check out this band you know you probably dig them months later i was vinyl diving again i found the temple of the dog album i listened to it I realized it was um, the singer of Soundgarden and, and the remnants of Mother Love Bone, who I really didn't know much about at all at the time. And um, and so I found out the name Mother Love Bone. I thought, wow, why you know why are these guys in Soundgarden? I thought it was all of them. It was really just Chris and, and Kim. No, just Chris, really. Um, and I thought, why? this isn't Soundgarden like, you know, and right. it seemed really raw. And there was like a message behind it in the liner notes that Jeff wrote and all. And so I kind of just, it, it kind of felt like there was something to it, but I didn't really know what it meant other than the music rocked. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's one of and the then, best uh, albums of the nineties. Right. And then, you know, when you get back in that day, you would get these like catalogs in the mail, like Columbia Records thing and like yes. 12 CDs for a penny. Yes. <laughs> and everybody I know ripped them off so bad because you would do that. And then here, here's what I did. This is I, I, I may, maybe I don't know if there's a statute yeah. of limitations on this crap, so, but I'll <laughs> tell the story anyway. So what happened for me was I found one of those on the back of some magazine and I was poor college students. I'm like, I'll I'll do that, and then you know I've got a part time job. I'll, I'll eventually, I'll eventually you know just buy the twelve or something that you had to get <laughs> over the next year. And so uh, I filled it out and got like ten CDs in for the, the buck or something. And I, but what they would do, and you, I'm sure you remember this, is is they would automatically send you one that you had to pay for. Yeah. Unless you ticked that little butt, that, that little <laughs> thing, and mailed it back every month. And so what I would do is I would get it. And I would remember, oh, crap, I forgot. I didn't send that stupid thing back. I wouldn't even open it up. I would just write return to sender on it and then stick it back in the mail and send it back. <laughs> yeah. And they finally got so sick of it, they, they just stopped sending me stuff. <laughs> yeah, they, they had us all. None of a, anyone who's buying those 12 CDs for a penny, 
you're not responsible enough to return, no. check a box and return it. Exactly. <laughs> I, I could go to the store and buy the CDs. I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It wasn't like I was getting anything special. I, you know, yeah. I remember getting There's you know, like five albums you like, right? And then like seven that you just kind of cannon fodder them. And yeah. Like, oh, I'll remember, try that. Yeah. I remember finding Mother Love Bone in there. And I was like, really? oh, hey, I'll. Or that's that band. I'll order this. Oh, wow. You know, in like 15 weeks later or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. That's another thing. <laughs> you just wait forever. I mean, the album's old by that. Today, by today's standards, the music would be dead and gone. Oh, yeah. Before the CD got her. Exactly. But back then, it was a different kind of thing, you know? Yeah, longer so cycle. I to it. Uh, it floored me, man. Uh, Mother Love Bone just blew my mind when I heard it. And. I kind of knew a little bit about that story from the Temple of Dog experience prior to that. And, um, yeah, man, it just kind of went from there. I thought, you know, I was in film school and I wanted to tell, I wanted to do a documentary and I wanted to find a subject that meant something to me because I knew, you know, it takes like 10 years to make a good documentary. Right. And, uh, I didn't know what story I could kind of carry that long, you know? And so, uh, and ended up that I that was so floored by the music that I just um, decided to try and do a movie on Andy. That's amazing. I mean, I remember um, back back when uh, uh, Apple before before Apple came out, they uh, again this is something you probably remember. They would have compilation cassettes out, yeah. and there was a uh, concrete something. I don't remember what the hell it was, but. Uh, I went to a record store, bought some record, and they would give it to you for free. It was up at the counter. I'm like, hey, all right, you bought this. Just take this CD and listen. To it. Like, okay, fine. Right. <laughs> and it had a black. It had. Uh, I gave it a listen because it had something off Black Sabbath's Tear album. Yeah. And I had that album. And I'm like, oh, cool. And it had a them doing a cover. A cover, I guess, of because uh, this was '91, I guess. And it had them doing Paranoid. But, you know, by that time, the only member of Black Sabbath was was uh, uh, Tony Iommi. Yeah. There wasn't yeah. anybody else. So it's basically a cover. So I'm like, oh, cool. And one of the songs on there was, uh, it was Stardog Champion. So this was about 91 and I'm, my big thing is that when I get an album and I start listening to it, I'll, I have to I have the physical copy. And so I'll open up the liner notes and I'll just start reading. And so I was reading yeah, the that, cassette. Wasn't that super cool back then? Nobody does that, that anymore. No, that, that's how I found some of my favorite bands of all time. And it's how I found Mother Love Bone. I huh. pulled open the, uh, the cassette case and I started reading the liner notes as I'm playing this cassette, uh, you know, intermittently playing video games or something and reading. Every time a song would come on, a song would change, I would stop the game, open the thing up and read a little bit about the song that was playing. And Stardog Champion came on it. And I'm like, oh, this is this thing. This sounds awesome. This is nice and swirly, kind of psychedelic sounding. So I'm like, oh, all right, pause the game. Let me go read about this. And it, I'm reading about it. And then it says that the album's coming out in like two months and the lead singer's already died. I'm like, oh, my God, this is this is incredible. This is this song's amazing. And the band's not going to 
make any more music. And yes. so when, when it came out, I, I went and hunted the album down. And so I, I, again, reading all the liner notes, finding out everybody involved in it. And one day I was, I, I, I like you, I was playing music, not, not very good. And, uh, <laughs> but I would try to learn songs. And, and so I would get the guitar magazines and hopefully, you know, they would have a tab in there that you could learn something right? off of real fast. <laughs> Anything. Yeah. yeah. And so, and it would be a, you know, out of the four or five songs they picked, hopefully it was one that you liked. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember I picked one up and it, it had something that I liked and I don't remember what exactly it was, but probably Rush or something I'd never, ever be able to play. <laughs> and so I'm looking through it and they have this section, this little quick one page news uh, page and it would have a, uh, just like a two or three sentence about certain bands and each band would be highlighted in black. So you could see which bands you're interested in. And I looked down and I saw, I think it was mother love bone and Soundgarden, or yeah, mother love bone and Soundgarden were in, in black. I'm like, Ooh, in bold print. What's, what's this about? And it said that the two bands had kind of members of each band had come together to do an album called temple, of the dog that's going to be out in August or something. So I was, yeah. Oh man, I got to go look for that. And as soon as, August came around every day. I was every Tuesday. I was in the uh, record store looking for Temple of the Dog, and I picked. Or, or, you know, so yeah, something like that. But I'm, I'm, it may have been a different month. I may have been a little late. I think it was it. April. It came. Yeah. Out, but yeah. Okay. That's yeah. That's what exactly because I remember going at lunchtime. I was in high school, going at lunchtime to pick up the album and <laughs> and and bring it into like my Spanish class. And instead of doing Spanish, I'm sitting there looking at the album, reading the album, the liner notes and stuff. So. So then I, that's where, you know, I started getting really, really started getting into the Seattle music. So. You know, but that's a, kind of the beauty of that era. I miss it a lot now. You know, you know, I have a son who's 15 years old and exploring music and, yeah. but there's just that sense of, of finding it, you know, yeah. uh, back in the day where you would go to a store and you dig in and the only thing you ever saw was maybe a couple of hit parader pictures of the guys in the band or the girls in the band. Exactly. The liner notes were everything and the CD covers and the albums and yeah. just the texture of it all. Um, and you'd listen to it end to end, man. You know, it was, it oh, was yeah. everything. You, you had know, to. Like there's a single on Spotify. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you had to listen to it end to end because you had invested into it. You'd spent, and at that time, CDs were, I mean, they have, honestly, they haven't gone up in price too much, which is surprising. But at that point, it was. They weren't cheap. Yeah. No, they were, you know, 15, 17 bucks. And as a high school yeah. kid, you know, I That's made. A lot of money. Yeah, I, you know, I made a hundred bucks a week. So, you know, <laughs> so. It was an investment trying to get an album. So whether you liked it or not, you listened to it for beginning yeah. to end. I think that I think that sense of discovery for the audience um, that's really kind of gone away is something that a lot of artists struggle with now. You know, like because so yeah. much has been done, it's hard to discover. You know, and go and go find new roots into things, and so people take what they have that's old and you know redo it. Which is which is on the one hand is great, and on the other hand, um, it's not so cool because um, nobody's really doing a lot of great things. There, there's a couple of bands out there that I really like right now. They're doing some amazing stuff. Yeah. Uh, but um, you know, they, I think the sense of discovery that Andy had in his era was super cool because oh, yeah. he could just go dig into the 1970s and pull out 
anything, like a magic hat, and yeah. just put it on a stage <laughs> in a punk rock venue, mind you. Oh, where yeah. If you're not good, you're going to get your ass kicked. You know? Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know how he had the balls to do it, but he just he didn't care. Exactly. And, and and that's what I loved about the documentary that you made is that you have vintage clips of him on stage. So he's he, like you're saying, he's in Seattle. He's in a he's in punk venues. He's in this insane band called Malfunction playing. I don't even know what it's like. A, it's his brother. Kevin's in the band and, and Regan Hagar is in, on drums and and his brother's playing like a mile a minute andrew's in white face paint and lipstick and his hair is all teased out and and he's in a punk club and he doesn't care we're not gonna just let it go on like a little show we want to see the whole place going wild like these smart people over here now you people you're wasting the floor go and sit at the bar and we're gonna do that i want you all Like uh, they, they all had the punk rock sensibility. You know, they bought the punk rock Bible, hook, line, and singer. Like, it doesn't matter what your audience thinks or anyone thinks. And if you get really good, you suck. You know. Yeah. So, so they, I think initially it was just like play as fast as you possibly can, just to try and fit in the clubs. And that was really the most interesting thing about that era in Seattle. Was Seattle was what was really the ground zero of mixing heavy metal and punk rock right in that era. And that's what grunge was, you know, yeah. or became ultimately they called it grunge. I think Mark Arm um, from Green River actually dubbed it or said it was like grunge, but then they gave it to him or whatever. Yeah. But <laughs> the, the era mixed those two. And those two crowds didn't really mix well. I mean, I, I was, again, born in – the East Bay and Oakland had a huge punk rock scene at the time, which Seattle was kind of trying to emulate, but we didn't really have the heavy metal because it went into that spandex stuff, you know, <laughs> Yeah. But, but Seattle didn't at the time, you know, they hadn't quite gotten up that far, you know, with yeah. the spandex and yeah. the hairspray, <laughs> except for Andy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and there, there was a club called Gorilla Gardens actually, Although that's not the real name of it. Gorilla Gardens had, it was one of the two stages that the place had. They had the Omni Room and the Gorilla Garden stage. And okay. Guns N' Roses actually played their first show ever up there. Oh, wow. Because Duff was in 10 Minute Warning and had gone down to LA. And Greg Gilmore, Mother Love Bone, was in 10 Minute Warning with him. Oh, this, yeah, and that's right. Both went to LA and Greg, Greg came back because he couldn't handle the hair and all that stuff. And <laughs> Duff ends up in Guns and they hitchhike up to Seattle and play Gorilla Gardens, like one of the first shows, their wow. first show ever. Andy ends up opening um, Gorilla Gardens at the opening. The cool thing about wow. the club, though, was they had the Omni Room and the Gorilla Stage, and one of them was a punk rock venue, and the other was heavy metal. 
So at that one venue was wow. the, the ultimately the birth of what became Grunge Rock. Wow. Crazy, right? That's amazing. Yeah, so, yeah, it's wild. Must have been a lot of fights outside oh, of that. Oh, God, I can't there. even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, just, that's just, that's like oil and water in one club. And, or, you know, it's just <laughs> gas in a match. You know, it's, I can't yeah. imagine why you would put those two together. It, it seemed to work out, yeah. Apparently so, but. So the big one of the biggest labels of the '90s came out of the Seattle Sub Pop Records, but yeah. Malfunction and Sub Pop signed like everybody, or at least everybody did a, one of the uh, Sub Pop Singles Clubs releases. Yeah, but Malfunction never did. Right, they were turned down by Sub Pop for not being grunge enough. Is from what yeah. I understand, I, you know, I don't, I can't speak for those guys or what they thought at Sub Pop, you know, at the time. I think that it was tough to it was tough to swallow malfunction, you know, like they were probably one of the most popular bands, but with the audience, you know, with people who are trying to sell them or um, profit from them or explore them or exploit them, they uh, they were hard to deal with because you never knew what was going to happen. You know? like yeah. Think on, on a stage and just like Chris said uh, in an interview in my movie, um, you know, some nights they just blow people away and then other nice people just be backing up by the doors and what the fuck is going on this is weird (laughs) (laughs) you had no idea what to expect they were kind of hit or miss and um the audience i think loved them and and jack and dino in particularly really loved them and he's probably the reason that they ever got recorded um because he was working at reciprocal records and um, and, and they ended up on CZ with Chris Hanzik and I think it was his wife and he had a label called CZ records that ultimately did the deep six compilation yeah. that came out. And that was kind of their first official recordings. And Jack, who was in skin yard at the time, um, and his drummer was Matt Cameron, uh, who oh, yeah. Chris was still playing drums originally, but then when they went in, when Soundgarden went in to do their songs for deep six, they saw what a real drummer was when they saw Matt <laughs> and he was kind of like, you know, maybe I shouldn't play drums anymore. <laughs> That's awesome. I did. I'd never heard that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they didn't end up on sub pop, but they ended up kind of finding their way to vinyl, which for us all is treasure, man. I'm glad they did. You know? Oh yeah. And that, you know, that, even though they never re- really record anything, but that for CZ, it's, it's, uh, they're still considered one of the founding fathers of grunge. Yeah, well, I mean, in Andy's mind, he was always putting out albums, you know, yeah. like, yeah, he had, I think I recovered about 1500 recordings of his. Oh, my God. And yes, yeah, just on, it's just a mountain of work. And <laughs> he, he, and he would put out these albums, he put up flyers on records, the Acme record store in downtown Bainbridge, or um, the Rainbow, or wherever in Seattle, and just say, you know, take this flyer for free and send me $3 and 33 cents for my next two albums. So in his mind, he had released like 50 albums. (laughs) That's amazing. Even though probably like 12 people heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I remember again, going way back to the nineties here. um, There's, and did you ever get the, uh, the magazine, the gold mine? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. I remember what me and my buddy Ed would do. We would drive down to this record store in Princeton, New Jersey. And uh, they would have 
loads and literally thousands of CDs against walls. And they were all promos from local radio stations and stuff. Big, you know, College Town, Princeton's right there. And there's Rutgers not too far away. So they're getting tons and tons of promos. And uh, everything on that was, was like four ninety nine or less. And so I'd go in there with 20 bucks and come out with a ton of stuff. Yes. And I'd, go, and I'd pick up a gold mine while I was at it. So we would go back and start listening to the, to the CDs and start thumbing through gold mine. And in one place, they had this bootleg uh, called Words and Communication. And it was all Andy stuff. And it had yeah. a bunch of unreleased stuff from Malfunction. Yeah. And it's every bit of it ended up on Return to Olympus, but it was all, you know, not as good a quality sounding, but it was fair, <laughs> it was decent enough where I just, I fell in love with Malfunction, almost maybe even more so than Mother Love Bone, just because of, A, a the scarcity of the recordings, and I, and I had them at that point, and just the absolute frenetic sounds of them. I mean, it was just, you'd hear one song that, that was insane, like, um, my only fan where they're just going 100 miles an hour And then until the ocean, where it's nice and piano, and I just said, these guys—they can do anything. And yeah. when the actual album came out on Loose Groove, I guess Stone decided to put it out. It was just—I mean, that was—that was me going to Olympus at that point. And <laughs> I'm looking at, and I've got it right here. I'm looking oh, at yeah, the uh, the uh, the documentary that you put out with the the album, and so you actually. I guess it would, I'm not sure how it works. How were you able to to re-release it with the extra yeah. stuff? So let me let me backtrack just by saying it's refreshing to hear that you're a Malfunction fan. Oh, love Malfunction. Uh, I, I was originally attracted by Mother Love Bone, as most people are, and then um, yeah, and then after learning about Andy and just where his head was at during Malfunction versus where his head was at in Mal- Mother Love Bone and. Um, and who he was, like he was malfunctioned. You know, yeah. That that was him, Landry, the love child. So, I I really learned to appreciate that music so much more as well. You know, than I, I love Mother Love Bone. Don't get me wrong, but it was a very challenging thing for him and all of those guys at the time. But um, to the other question, so when I did the movie, I didn't, I, I wasn't going to make a movie without one's buy-in. You know, like. And not monetarily, just like right. with their heart, you know, and their spirit. They, um, I wasn't going to do it. If anyone was, if anyone thought it wasn't a good idea, then I wasn't even going to bother, you know. Okay. So I kind of, um, you know, I got a hold of his family, and we met, and then I met Regan and Stone and Kim and Chris, and I kind of started meeting people over a few years, and uh, realized that they were. They kind of were ready to talk about it, you know, yeah. finally. And so, you know, but 10 years, it took me 10 years to put the movie together. Wow. Right? And then it got killed for like five years and took me five more years to resurrect it, to get it to release. You know, I, I don't want to track. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell say, you that. Right? I was going to say, I didn't want to interrupt you because I remember hearing about it and then it did, it disappeared for a while. 
And then eventually, uh, that same friend of mine that I was telling you about, Ed, he's like, hey, I think, it th- I think that uh, Andrew Woods thing is coming back out. And, oh, my gosh, this is, this is going to be amazing. So, yeah, I, I had forgotten about that. Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about it. So first, the, the first question, um, so Stone and I had talked, and I, I wanted to release, um, you know, I had recovered a bunch, so many of Andy's recordings, some amazing stuff, I wanted to put it out. And he, Loose Groove had just left the Sony label, so they didn't have distribution anymore, and the album was out of print. Yeah. So I just asked Stoney, you know, I was like, can we re-release it? You know, wouldn't that be cool? Because I want to do a three-piece, right? A movie and two albums. It had to be three. 333, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? So we, uh, he said, cool. And so we re-released um, that album. And then he and I picked the tracks together that ended up on the Andrew Wood solo album. Okay. And he helped me clean some of them up and even identify some of them. And, and then I had recovered... I had found a couple of tapes from when Andy and Chris lived together. Wow. And so I sent Chris one of the tracks and I said, look, man, I know this is from when you guys lived together. I think I hear Andy and harmonies in the background. Could you check it out? And can I release it? And, uh, he checked it out and said, yeah, man, you put it on. So this, wow. that ended up being the last track on the Andrew Wood solo album is Chris Cornell and Andy. I recently found another one. Really? Uh, this one is, yeah, this is Chris playing guitar and Andy singing. Oh, um, wow. And I've been able to, you know, I, you know, when you make a documentary or anything, you got to, or write a book, which I'm finishing now on the same subject, you have to have your facts straight. You got to be able to prove every the chain of title on all of it. So right, I was right. able to prove that it was Chris and Andy on this next recording too that nobody's ever heard, which oh, is, it blew me away when I found it. I was like, wait a minute. I looked at <laughs> some lyrics where Andy had written because he always was good about writing his dates and time. You know, he'd always put a wood February 2nd, you know, on 88 or whatever. Oh, wow. he wrote it, like all the time words, Andy music stone or whatever. And, uh, and on one that said, Andrew, Chris Cornell. And I was like, wait a minute. And I looked at the date on the recording that I had. I had a tape of that same day that said C. Cornell on it in tiny little, you know, <laughs> pen in the corner of all these crazy drawings. Oh, wow. And it was them. That was the same one that he had written the lyrics. So it blew my mind. Oh, so my that, Right? God. <laughs> yeah, it's coming. It's oh, coming. I can't wait to hear that. I'm telling you, the, one of the first things I heard when I saw the, uh, the uh, documentary come out, I saw Islands of Summer and uh, the Chris Cornell, Andy Wood song. And I'm like, this has got to be incredible. And it doesn't disappoint. I mean, it's one of my favorite Chris Cornell solo pieces. I guess yeah, you'd call it a solo. So, it's just so raw. He, he, 
just there's just them sitting in their apartment on uh, Melrose up there and just playing, you know. Yeah. It's, Chris used to like put himself in the bathroom and sing all the time, you know, man. a glass of Jack Daniels and, and hide in the bathroom and sing because he liked the <laughs> reverb. Always, yeah. he, the Chris Cornell reverb, the legendary reverb comes from his bathroom in that house. Oh you know? my it's like God. A, sound just like that when he played on stage. That's incredible. Oh my God. So the, the, the movie thing, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so it was, um, that was a tough thing, you know, so I didn't mind taking a long time making a film. I had watched the movie Crumb, which is a documentary film, which is fantastic yeah. about Robert Crumb, who was an artist in the San Francisco area. And there was no narration, right? Um, and I loved that. And I thought, okay, Dogma 1, no narration. I'm right. not speaking in this movie. If I can't tell it with pictures, I'm not doing it. Okay. Um, and then the more interesting thing to me was that Robert Crumb was a character who really couldn't speak for himself because he's such an introvert. And they had interviews with his two other brothers, and you learned so much about who he was through his brothers, right. more than you could from him. And I thought, huh, I got Andy, who really can't speak for himself, yeah. um, and he's got two brothers. Maybe I can doctor my film after that. So I just like tried to do everything I could, like crumb, you know. Oh, that's I, awesome. My movie's a blatant ripoff of it. <laughs> no one ever know. You can see, you know, you go, oh, God, I get why he did it like this. Um, and then the other documentary that was really exciting was The Kid Stays in the Picture, um, which was uh, the first use of, like, um, rotoscoping stills and animating them, you know, okay. um, not just like Ken Burns effect, but separating background from foreground. Right. Yeah. And, and so I was like, wow, that's amazing. I want to do that. Right. So yeah. visually, um, to, to visualize mother love bone, you know, or Landry, the love child was going to be a big task. You <laughs> yeah. know? So, I uh, so I borrowed a lot from that movie because I felt like it could help me kind of get there, you know, visually with it. So, okay. anyways, ten years of making the movie, um, selling everything I owned, flying back to San Francisco, you know, and then selling a bunch of stuff and flying back to Seattle, do four interviews, all on sixteen millimeter film, by the way. Oh wow! Fly back, you know, it just took a long time and. And just finding Andy's things and going through his, you know, recording all of his music I found and scanning all the lyrics. And it's just a long process. And so finally I get it done, right? I start in 95. I started researching about 93 and then got a hold of his mom in 94. And then 95 started shooting. And okay. in 2005, I was finished editing. Right? I shot, stopped shooting in 2000. I shot um, Michael Goldstone, I think, and Lance Mercer, a couple other people in 2000. That was it. Okay. And uh, and so I, it took me four years to edit it, right? Jeez. <laughs> Man. <laughs> yeah. And I was, I was actually working at Apple at the time on the Final Cut Pro team. So oh, I cool. knew how to cut really well, but it's still a process, you know, so – uh, yeah, I finished in 05 and I ran in film festivals, right? And I had a thing called a favored nations clause where if I didn't pay anyone, I didn't have to pay anyone because I didn't have any money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, I went to festivals and it did really well. I won, you know, a couple of awards here and there and distributors were really interested. I was running with a couple of movies. Um, 
Madonna's Truth or Dare. And, oh, wow. And there was another punk rock show that I really liked. I can't remember the name. I'll think of it. It wasn't Doug Prey's Hype. It was another one. Um, I can't remember. But there's another film that ran with in 05, and it'll dawn on me. Okay. And so uh, I go to get distribution. I'm like, I got a distribution deal. I need to get the music rights. And there was a, a woman named Michelle Anthony who had been Mother Lobone's attorney back in the day and was now representing Pearl Jam. But Pearl Jam had just finished in 2005. They finished their five-album deal on Sony label and left. Michelle Anthony, who was number two at all of Sony, abruptly resigned and was all gone. Wow. And Sony was holding the rights to the music. Oh, and I was God. like, hey, can I put out the movie? And they're like, yeah, oh, 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 those guys, huh? <laughs> yeah. That would be a lot of money that you don't have. And I was like, oh, no. God. And I won't quote numbers or they crushed me. I, I was like, I can't put this out. So without the music, I didn't have a movie anymore. So right. it was dead. Like, dude, that was that hurt so bad. Oh, god, yeah, I'm kidding. Great, great lesson. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> you built a giant house that you cannot live in this oh. ever. <laughs> Matter of fact, we may burn it down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> but why? <laughs> so, I, I was really angry, I think, at the time. I didn't want to make another movie ever. Oh, um, but I had some friends, and they were like, convinced me to start shooting some horror movies. So I was doing really bad horror movies, intentionally bad. Oh, no. You know, like if you didn't, like a guy in a lobster suit, if you didn't see like the zipper in the suit, <laughs> in the shot, I wasn't, you had to, we had to reshoot. I need to see the zipper. Oh, this geez. This is God awful, gratuitously awful, or I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just pushing all my venom onto the screen. I love it. That's so amazing. Oh, man. They're like, you know, you, you need to consider an audience. I'm like, fuck the audience. <laughs> <laughs> like, we can't work with this guy. <laughs> so, yeah, I was in a bad way. And then suddenly, um, one day out of nowhere in 2011, Michelle, this is five years later, six, almost six years later, Michelle Anthony calls me out of the blue and she's like, hey, Scott, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm hanging in there. Good. You know, unless you've seen my movies and I don't know, then maybe we could talk. <laughs> what did like, I do now? Yeah, she had resurfaced at Universal and um, Stoney had picked up the whole catalog and brought it with them. And they said, wow. look, we want to put your movie out. And boom, there it went. Jeez. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. wow, just that fast. That happened, yeah. Uh, yeah. And the thing that was fortuitous about it, you never really realize you know, what kind of blessing in disguise it might be, but Cameron Crowe had just finished PJ-20, which had come oh, out like two months before mine was going to get released. Oh, wow. And so it really helped launch mine in a good way because people saw PJ-20, which is a fantastic film. And yeah. And in it, they reference Andy a whole bunch. And so right when people start questioning who's Andy, boom, my film hits. So yeah. Like, I mean, they even do okay. the cover of Star Dog Champion in that, right? Yeah. I was like, it could have been a little easier universe. But <laughs> yeah. I get it. There's a lesson in here somewhere. Uh, blah, blah, my movie's yeah. out. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it the easy way next yeah. time. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That's, in, that's a, some perseverance for you right there. Jeez. Yeah, you kind of, I kind of had to do it, you know. I felt like I it had to it had to be done, and at that point, I was the only person to do it, and which is why you know it, I I actually wrote a book too at the time, 
you know, and I just put it away for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. I just dusted it off after Chris passed and I'm finishing it now uh, to to release that. That's awesome. Uh, That's awesome. Well, as an, as an Andy fan, I really appreciate your perseverance because you've unearthed stuff that would never have seen the light of day without you. So that's one thing I wanted to ask you about. You said you found like 1500 recordings or so. How did you find them? How, how did you put the call out and, and what were you doing to get all this stuff? Yeah, it was really interesting because so I had talked to Chris and um, one thing he told me kind of rang out to me was um, he said, look, Scott, I, I appreciate what you're doing for Andy. And, you know, it's it'd be amazing if you could capture the kind of person he was. But he did he wasn't the kind of guy who did a lot of interviews. There's not a lot of video of him and things like that. But unless you find the music, you'll never know who he is. And and the music is the way he goes, it'd be great if you could, but you're not. And I was like, okay, wow, that's heavy. I totally agree. And so he was like, do you have any idea where it is? And I said, no, I I don't. So at that time I had no idea. Um, and I had at the run the same time I'd hired a private investigator to try and find Xana. Oh, wow. Uh, because she had disappeared. And so the way they work is you got to pay them whether they find her or not. And then if they find them, then they have to ask that person if it's okay to contact, you know, give you their contact. You could be a stalker, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, um, so I had hired a private investigator and I, they found her and she agreed to talk to me. And so I spoke to Zan and the first question I had for her was, where is all the stuff? You know, I know that they lived in an apartment together when he passed and kind of everything just disappeared. Yeah. And she did too. And she had kind of moved from place to place at that point was like, I don't know where all it all is. You know, I think the last place I remember seeing it is with this guy and she gives me the name and I had never heard of him. And so Maybe a year later, I was talking to Chris again, and he's like, so have you had any luck finding the music? And I was like, no, but I found Xana, and she mentioned this guy's name and said that maybe that he has it. And Chris was like, oh, I know that guy. He's one of my best friends. Oh, I was like, what? Jeez. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, would, would you mind calling him? Yeah. <laughs> he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll put in a call. Oh, my so, God. I fly back to San Francisco and maybe a week later I get a call from Chris and he goes, yeah, here's his phone number. Give him a call. I was like, thanks man. Wow. And I call and the guy's like, Oh yeah. Is this Scott? I was like, yeah. And he goes, what's your address? He's just a, just blunt. You know, what's your address? Well, I want to get all this shit out of my basement. <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay, here's my address. <laughs> I have no idea what's going to show up. And I got like five boxes with everything Andy owned. Wow. At my doorstep, you know, and so I, uh, oh my gosh. I had to dry clean all the clothes and, you know, it was all of his stacks of lyrics, all his music and wow. clothes and everything he owned, rings and necklaces, everything. That's amazing. And, yeah. It was kind of crazy. So I, I dry cleaned it all. I cataloged it all. I sent the majority of it back to his parents, you know, his mom. Yeah. And, uh, and I, but I recorded every single tape I had VHS. And that's where I got a lot of the VHS footage of him was in those tapes wow. and all of his, um, 
CDs that he had, or the cassettes he had recorded and scanned all of his lyrics and cataloged all that stuff and then and shipped it all back and kind of milled through it for like two years. Oh, my God. <laughs> a long time. Literally, I man. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. I mean, 1,500. Yeah. Because I mean, in the meantime. And- thousand over a thousand recordings and in the meantime so you still actually have a job and, and family and stuff that yeah. you gotta deal with yeah i got a day job <laughs> and i scan i had my brother scanning things he's like dude how much do i have to scan I'm like every page man <laughs> 600 dpi oh my <laughs> gosh i just gotta hold up on a big screen jeez and, so, and my mom is transcribing the interviews because she was a secretary. My wow. brother's scanning stuff. I'm recording. <laughs> this is a f- total family <laughs> affair. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's incredible. Now, and around this time, uh, his brother Kevin started releasing some weird malfunction stuff on on his Whammy Box label. Yeah. And from those recordings. Okay, that's because I was going to ask you. I I reached out to him when I saw that, and I said, "I I want whatever you got." And he, at that time, he'd only had like four, maybe maybe five albums worth. And yeah. and I was like, "Yeah, give it all. I want to buy it all." So he he said, "Yeah, no problem." Send it out to me with the photocopied. Uh, you know, it's a it's a CDR. <laughs> it's a photocopied cover. Love it. And it's insane because I'm listening to it and stuff. I don't, I don't know what happened <laughs> because stuff is, songs are like, they come right, if they start right in the middle of a song or they'll end in the middle of a song and it just, it's just, there's no rhyme or reason to it. I can't tell if the track listing is correct. One or two of them, it just says, it's like 12 songs, it says untitled and then, but there's like 14 songs on the disc and then he sent me another, another disc it just he, he just said film music and it's stuff that he was working on for some film or something and the only thing I recognize is a cover him doing a cover of All the Young Dudes by Mata Hoople. Oh yeah, I recorded that. Yeah, I, I put him in a recording studio oh, awesome. to, for another. We were gonna do a. We were, so I was working with Ian Asbury, a singer of the Cult. Oh yeah. We were gonna kind of do a tribute thing that went with the movie, accompanied it. Okay. Um, and so we redid all the young dudes and, um, my love and, um, I don't know, maybe seven or eight tracks together, you know? Oh, wow. And it was Brian sang, Sean Smith sang. Oh gosh, there's um, another one. Kevin, Kim played a little bit. Um, Ian sang on one. Yeah, it was cool, man. Uh, Susie Cornell actually did two songs. Chris's sister, who was in Inflatable Soul, which is a band. He has three sisters and two brothers. And uh, they were in a band called Inflatable Soul at the time. Oh, and so wow. Susie and I were friends. I recorded her doing a couple tracks and oh we never God. really released any of that. Kevin got the ones that I gave him, the you know, the masters that we had. 
I, mean, I I'll probably just give it away now. You know, put it up on the website that I'm building. And <laughs> yeah. Just download, just so they can share it. You know. Well, at that point, I might be able to figure out what the songs are on there. I can make yeah. my own little track <laughs> listing. I don't, that's the only It'll one take I know. Ten years to figure. It out. <laughs> yeah. Again, I've I've got a persevering. Everything persevering for Andy. That's 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 <laughs> what we do apparently. True that. But um, he now there's also this weird thing he put out with the Bangladesh Jam. Yeah, what? yeah, that's malfunction. So there's some interesting. That was Jack and Dino recorded a, a reciprocal because that um, seems like there, a it's like a patchwork of all bunch of different things going on in there. Yeah, that that was really reminiscent of what Andy would do on his four track. You know, he would do all kinds of wild tracks and put them all together, and sometimes it didn't make any sense at all. You know? Oh yeah, and other times it just was amazing you know the the crazy thing about the recordings is some of them are like one of the tracks um was actually mother love bone recording which was um i think it's until the ocean was actually a mother love bone recording recorded in sausalito oh wow. that ended up on the malfunction album yeah stoney put it out on that album oh wow like slipped it out there under the radar you know that's so, an, okay so that makes a little more sense as to why that just stands out yeah it's all in the book so i kind of went you know you can only you can only do so much in a movie right i had like you know two hours or a little under two hours to kind of tell a life story of somebody is yeah. hard and I think I got the point across, you know, that um, of his character. Like, hopefully, the audience can like understand what kind of person he was and leave with the, that happy high that he would give people he met. Yeah, and get a good exploration of his music. You know, I think most people want to turn the movie off in the first half hour. It's all malfunction, and there's what is this about? <laughs> and I'm like, but I wanted them to feel that, you know. Yeah, and I. I had a bunch of people tell me like you got to recut the beginning so it's more sexy. I'm like, no, this was what they were. I want at moments people just go, what the fuck is happening? Yeah, and then later go, oh my god, that's amazing. And if you get through that, you get the prize, right? Exactly. You get to see what where it went. You know? Exactly. <laughs> if you turn it off before then, screw you. <laughs> exactly. That's you know that's that's like everything. You got to weed through some of it. You but you, it also gives you more of an appreciation for how good Andrew became. I mean, yeah, it was it was as true to him and his persona and his career trajectory as I could possibly get, you know, yeah. um, even in the structure of the film, like it really doesn't all come together until, um, stargazer, like right then it just starts to really shift and the editing is really smooth and all kinds of, you know, everything changes after that, you know? But it takes time to get there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and like like you said, it gives you a truer sense of who he was and, and his story. Yeah. The now, reality of it. So, that, yeah. so So I wanted to – I felt at the same time, you know, as I'm older now and a lot of other things have passed, I felt like it was time, you know, especially after Chris passed. I felt it was time like if I don't put the book out, it's never coming out. Like yeah. I'm, I, I'm the only one with it. So – I so I finished it off, one hundred fifty thousand words, and um, and we're in the editing phase now. And it, you know, 
I didn't even understand Andy as much as I thought I did when I made the movie that I, that I do now in writing about him because uh, it's just so much deeper, man. It's yeah, you know, there's, it includes letters between him and Zana and, oh, that wow. I I placed in there and his lyrics and the dates that he wrote them and what was going on in his life at that time and how they made sense to that and when you start digging into all that, you really start to see, you know, the tremendous struggle he was under and, uh, and ultimately what killed him, you know? So it's, it's, it's a wild ride. It, I can imagine because, and you know, talking about Xana again, you know, she's a, such a polarizing figure for, for anybody who's followed Andrew, you know, that there's the relationship was volatile to say yeah. the least, you know, and, and some people blame her for what happened and some people, you know, say she's a saint for, for putting up with what she had to put up with. Yeah. I think it kind of, is, it, yeah, it's a double-edged sword, right? As always, I think for me, you can't really judge that, you know, yeah. you kind of gotta, they gotta, people, there's some strange whiskeys out there that people like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things that the, I loved about the movie is that you really kind of shed light on what her life was like with Andy because you know, nobody really knew. Yeah, the book really goes into that a lot. And I think, I believe that when people read it, they'll come out the other end and realizing how much she tremendously struggled to save his life. You yeah. know, it, it becomes really obvious, um, you know, when you just see their the dialogue between them raw, you know, right off the, the postcards and letters they wrote to each other. And it's, wow. I, um, for me, yeah, she had a rough time, and I, I love Zana, and she helped me out tremendously. And you know, I could, I'd support her in anything I could. And yeah, um, she's been through her struggles. I've been through mine. Nobody's perfect, and um, you know, I think this will do her a lot of justice, actually. So I'm okay. I'm excited for that too. Yeah, everybody wants to kind of place blame, you know, like Brian Wood thought. He told me once, he said he thought he was always the villain until Xana came along. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't have to be the villain anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, and, you know, it's, it's funny because you can definitely hear a little bit of him because I, I was a big fan of Devil Head and Fire yeah. Ants and all. And you can definitely hear some Andy influence in even within his own family. But I don't think anybody really hit the level that that Andrew did. I mean, do you think that Andrew passing the way he did and when he did had an effect on, on Kevin and Brian's career path? Yeah. You know, I'm sure, I mean, on the personal level, right. It was obviously devastating. Right. I, I think Brian was just, was already a basket case at the time and really didn't have a lot more emotion to shed. So he was kind of already beside himself. Yeah. And Kevin had been kind of really crushed by the breakup of malfunction. So, in a, in an odd way, they had already lost him, you know, in, uh. in a weird way. Um, but on an emotional level, yeah, it's your family member. Yeah, I think the bigger question becomes, what would have happened to Mother Love Bone, you know? And I really don't think they would have been around, you know. They they there was so much inner turmoil in that band and so much pressure on them to be the biggest thing there was, you know, the saviors of commercial hard rock. They were. They were the fulcrum between what was commercial hard rock and grunge, you know. Yeah. But they were, but they were real, you know. So there, there was a chance for a, a really interesting genre to be alive for a little while longer of 
of that queen era of rock, you know, and um, with, but with that band, I think they would have broken up pretty quickly. And Andy would be like, um, he would have gone on solo because, you know, for someone like him, the struggle was he wanted to create stuff all the time, you know, constantly creating and didn't want to play the same song twice. You know, he'd play it, record it, go, that's great, move on. Right. Even in all the malfunction recordings, that's how they did it. Like he wouldn't do the track twice. Oh, wow. And, and, and that would be it. You got it or you didn't. And next time he'd play it totally differently, you know, or change wow. the lyrics or redo the song. And like he was always moving with his music and exploring and experimenting. So when it, when he had to like sit down and do the same thing the same way over and over and over, he resorted to his defense mechanism, which is always his humor. You know, he used yeah. his sense of humor to kind of gloss over the severity of what was going on in his life. And, and things were pretty severe at times, but you'd never know. And so you can see it in his stage persona. If you know him, you know, you go, wow, I get it, man. I know where that's coming from. He's uncomfortable and he's trying to kind of shed his skin and get through this. Yeah. So I think, I think it would have been really hard for him to continue on with the band. And he'd probably be like an Elton John or Beck or something like that today, you know, just okay. doing kind of crazy cool stuff that's uh, just out there. You know? Well, yeah. And you mentioned that in the movie that he had already thought about his solo album. Yeah. He had already written a solo album. Um, and a lot of those tracks ended up on the album I put out there with the movie. Yeah, he was kind of already on to other things. That's you know? He loved Mother Love Bone and loved the promise of it and what it, you know, getting to hang out with Stone all the time is a big deal to him. He he learned a lot from him. And they, uh, but ultimately, you know, it, I don't think it would have went very long. <laughs> wow, know, that wow. That's, yeah. I never thought of it that way. Now, you mentioned Stone. Now, he provided a couple of tracks for the... Uh, the movie uh, they called uh, Guitar Rhythm 333 and Guitar Riff 333. Now, were, were these yeah. like Mother Love Bone demos or were they something that he wrote for the movie? Yeah, so Andy, um, no, he, I don't, we didn't write anything specifically for the movie. Um, but he, um, he and Andy played together quite a bit. You know, they were like a songwriting team well before mother love bone got together okay because um, green river and malfunction shared a rehearsal space for a number of years and he and stone just started kind of jamming on the side and recorded a ton of stuff and so those tracks were things they were working on together okay. prior to love bone and then some of them ended up as mother love bone songs later Man, and that that seems to follow through even with Pearl Jam because you know, a, a number of the songs off the first two albums were songs that he had written for Mother Love Bone. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Even Temple of the Dog, um, you know, Time is of Trouble yeah. uh, was, was something he had written. There, I have video footage of him and Sausalito with Andy showing Andy that song for the first time, wow. playing it, and Andy humming over it, you know. Yeah, lo and behold, 
whoa, you know, Jeez. <laughs> or, or that would end up months later, you know. Oh my gosh. You know, I could go to your house. I could just hang out there for like a year. Just Yeah. You'd be blown away. I, <laughs> I would. <laughs> I'm trying to, so what I'm trying to do is, um, I'm going to, uh, so I'm looking at releasing the book in March, okay. um, which would be 20, which would be 30 years, um, God. of his passing. So three, right. That's crazy. And then. I've redone a website and I'm going to put a bunch of music and video clips and just have a, like a home base for, uh, anything and everything Andrew would, you know, oh, and great. there's, I, I do this crazy timeline that has pretty much anything you can imagine in his life on it. And you can surf through it and click on events. Like when you graduate high school and see a high school picture of him and what happened that day and wow. lyrics and, it just goes through the, his whole life like that. And so that'll be up. And I alluded on Facebook to a, a, a live album, um, which I'm going to just give away on the website. Um, oh, where and when, when Andy was on tour um, for Shine, he actually recorded a bunch of tracks in a bunch of different cities and put a, a cassette together of their live tour. Oh, and wow. so I'm going to release that. Record all those recordings that he chose. You know? Oh wow! Yeah, that's sure. amazing, so, right? And then I kind of, if you look, there's a Facebook little video I made. I blurred it out so you couldn't read everything yet. But there's every venue they hit and the history of that venue and where their hotel was and what when they got there. Just all little stories about what was going on during the time and. Oh, that's amazing. And that'll all just be kind of just free on the website, you know. Hopefully that'll attract people to buy the book and kind of want to know more and read about them, you know. That's fantastic. Well, I'm hoping that maybe this podcast can do the same thing, so. Thanks, man. Yeah. I really do appreciate you coming on. I know I've kept you for a little while now, and I know you got things to do, so I will let you go, but I really do appreciate you shedding a lot of light on Andrew. I've loved his music since... 90, 91, the first time I heard it. And I've been, for years, been trying to introduce people to him. And I think you've done it exponentially better than I could ever do it. So I, as a fan, thank you so much for the, the documentary and, and finding all these insane recordings and releasing them. It's just amazing. Yeah, look, thanks for having me. Uh, I really appreciate it. You know, it's it's good to have people out. And, and you know, I'm not really going to be reaching out to people to do publicity. So it's only the ones that might call me and you were the first to call me. So I'm going to make sure you get a free copy of the book and the oh, Blu-ray and everything I got. I'll just send it to you. Um, and thanks for having me on performance anxiety. Oh, um, thank you. Which is a fitting term actually for most of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but man, thank you so much. And where yeah. are people going to be able to find the book and, and the website and how can they reach out to you? Yes. Yeah, so there's a, so there's a new website, uh, manofgoldenwords.com. And people can go up on there and just put in their email. It's no obligation, but if they put in their email address and name, I'll reach out to them when the book's going to be available. And actually, the first bunch of people that go on there will get some special things that I haven't really announced. And uh, everything for the movie will be on there. And there's also a Facebook page up, Malfunction, the Andrew Wood story, where I kind of slip out a little bit of information now and then and just keep in touch with people who are interested. So yes. I hope everybody finds it. I just want to make sure his story gets out, man. And, you know, let's, let's just chisel it in stone, so to speak. You know? Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's a story worth telling It's I mean, for as much as, as 
of a great artist as he was, as it is a cautionary tale. So it's it's definitely something I I would encourage everybody to look into and and follow you. Is there Instagram pages or or uh, Twitter accounts or anything that anybody can follow? Is that coming up? I don't have an Instagram page yet, but I will put one up associated to Malfunction, the Andrew Wood story at Facebook. That's pretty much the primary one now. Or sign up from the mailing list for Man of Golden Words, uh, manofgoldenwords.com. And that's the name of the book. I'm going to be one of the first people to sign up because I'm going to do that right after we (laughs) hang up. So that way you've got my address and we can – Definitely stay in touch. And uh, thanks. You, I'll tell you this. Uh, I had reached out. One of the people I'd reached out to was Sean Smith. Yeah. And um, it took him. He immediately said, "Yeah, he, he'll come on the show and we'll we'll chat about his career." And he could. Ne- he would never really give me a date. And then finally, yeah. he he said, "Okay, let's do it. Let's, let's do it in a week or so." I said, "Okay, great." And literally a week later, he passed away. I was yeah, so man. upset. Yeah, that that one sucked too. And he'd sent I'm me sorry. a demo through a through Messenger that I that uh, I'd listened to. And, I mean, it's not unique to me, but I've I've seen it on uh, YouTube, but it's not sure, one I'd ever too. heard. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing that, real quick, that similar thing happened to me with Andy's father, where I had originally reached out to him. I sent a letter to him by an address I got off of uh, Andy's death certificate, which I got. And then um, that went to Bremerton, but his dad wasn't living there anymore. His dad was in Cuba. So the letter left from Bremerton, went to Cuba, found him there. Instead of Whoa. tearing it up and throwing it away like he did to every other letter that was related to Andy because he just couldn't deal with it, he decided to send it to Andy's mom back on Bainbridge Island, who he hadn't talked to in like 15 years. Oh, my gosh. And sends it to her. So months go by, and I think, oh, no one's ever going to respond. And suddenly I get a call from his mom saying, hey, you know, your letter found its way to me in a crazy way. I think this is supposed to happen. I was like, whoa. Wow. So fast forward years later, I was lining up his interview and he was in Cuba and he was coming back to Florida and I was going to fly out there and shoot the interview and he literally had a heart attack and died on the way back. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I, wow. that was like devastating, you know, to uh, the family and to myself. Yeah. It really sucked. But what I was able to do though, if you notice the very opening of the film is his dad talking Yeah, and that. That recording is from Andy's funeral at the Paramount. Yeah, in fact, I was going to say it's so heartbreaking to hear him say that if you're going to get a if you're going to get a singer, don't get a junkie. Yeah, and I was like, I because I couldn't give him, I couldn't get an interview with him, you know, which is horrible because of, he passed. Yeah. So I thought there had to be a way to open this and just like give it to you raw and straight, right from the beginning, from his dad who can't be in the movie. Boom, you know, yeah. that's a really powerful entrance. And oh, uh, I do have one more question for you. Sean Smith, how much interaction did he have with Andy and Mother Love Bone? Because on one of the, boot, the one of the bootlegs I've got, it's um, 
the song "These Are No Blues" for you. The uh, the first thing that out of out of um, Angie's mouth is he says Sean, and then he tells him how he wants to play something. Hey, Sean. And I never who knew who Sean was until years later. I I, I kind of figured maybe it's Sean Smith. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Sean Smith was always around. He was younger than Andy, um, but he was always hanging out with them. I've got a lot of video footage. Like if you look at some of the clips in the movie where Andy's live on stage, you can see Sean Smith rocking out in the audience. Oh, I'll have to check it out again. Yeah, you, only if you know, you know, yeah. you know. There's a lot of it there. There's so many subtleties in it, you know. But, uh, yeah, Sean was there from beginning to end, man, and he just really emulated it, loved Andy. And yeah. I think all, a lot of the music he played throughout his life was clearly inspired by Andy. When we opened my film in Seattle, Sean came out and played with um, Stone and Greg and Bruce and Kevin. We did a live show together. Oh, wow. um, so they did in tribute, you know. So, yeah, man, he he really loved him, and he got to see the film. I took him to one of the premieres with me one night, and drove oh, him home because awesome. he didn't he couldn't get home, you know. Oh, <laughs> so, gosh. you know, you talk about a struggling musician and yeah. made in town. I, I loved him dearly, heart of gold, and we'll miss him for it, sure, man. It's such a shame because Satchel was so good. Yeah, Satchel's how I got to meet Regan. So I I was a locksmith at the time, and I was listening to the radio one day, and they were like, Satchel playing with Better Than Ezra at the, at the Edge in Palo Alto. <laughs> and so I drove straight to Palo Alto, and I had to take a piss really bad because it was a long drive. Yeah. And so I went straight in the bathroom and I was like taking a piss. I'm like, I looked up to the ceiling and I was like, look, Andy, if you want me to make this movie for you, this is way in the beginning. I was like, if you want me to make this movie for you, you need to introduce me to Regan because I can't get anywhere without him. He's your best friend, drummer malfunction. Yeah. Let's do it. Tonight I'm here. He's here. Make this shit happen. And so I wash my hands. I walk out and I'm headed to the ropes for the back you know to the backstage area mm -hmm. and i had uh twenty dollars in my hand wrapped around a picture of me and andy's brothers because i had met them and i was going to give the twenty dollars to the bouncer and just say dude give the pictures to regan the drummer and and um you know tell him i want to talk to him yeah but as soon as i walked up to the guy he didn't say a word. He just opened the rope and let me through. Yeah, nothing. Whoa. Just whoop, right through. And I was like, thank you, Andy. Wow. <laughs> Game on. That is amazing. A lot of stuff like that happened on the way. And that was kind of the first big moment I knew, okay, this is, he's with me. I'm supposed to do this. Couple of years to 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 